Welcome to the Art of Curation, Flipboard show about the art and science of selection. I'm your host, Mia Qualiarello. I'm a curator, community manager, and Flipboard's head of creators. Each episode, I interview tastemakers from different fields who excel at the art of curation. How do they get started? How do they organize themselves? How do they curate for impact and more? Because if you think about it, curation is everywhere. Whether it's the day's news, a playlist, or your friend circle, curation is the DNA that makes or breaks experiences. Today, I'm talking to Dave Pell, who calls himself the internet's managing editor. He's the longtime writer and publisher of The Next Draft and a book called Please Scream Inside Your Heart, Breaking News and Nervous Breakdowns in the Year That Wouldn't End. It comes out in November 2021. Dave is a superhero in my world. His daily news roundup, The Next Draft, is essential reading because it keeps you informed on what's happening that day, but with Dave's signature sense of humor. In this interview, Dave tells me how he curates The Next Draft, and we bond over our common love of puns. We talk about how news curators can practice self-care, and I learn what it's like to be in a two-curator household. Dave's wife, Gina Pell, has her own newsletter called The What. Dave says they're the Beyonce and Jay-Z of curation. Here he is. So Dave, I'm so excited to talk to you today because when you're in the business that we're in, which is curating the day's news, the next draft is pretty much the holy grail. Every weekday, you deliver a meticulously crafted package that leaves subscribers informed for their days in a completely pleasurable way, and that is no small feat. Sorry, I, I really appreciate that intro. Maybe we should just stop there. That's This is going as well as it could be going already. <laughs> what made you want to start the next draft in the first place? Uh, well, I've always been really into writing, even though I've also um, done different things in my career. Writing has always been my key passion. So during the first internet boom in the very early days of the internet, I started doing some angel investing um, pretty casually, but I slowly got into it and I was building sites and uh, investing in startups. And so I created a newsletter called Davenetics where I would it was similar to Next Draft. I'd put together the top 10 uh, tech stories of the day, and I would send it out to all the CEOs I worked with, uh, basically summarizing what was in the story so they could stay focused. Back then, it was pretty crazy, the amount of internet-related news that came out. And word sort of got around about that newsletter. And by the peak, it probably had fifty or 60,000 um, subscribers, and all of them pretty much were internet professionals. So at that point, I had a potentially pretty good business model because everybody was in the same industry and it was a really popular. But I found that I was ultimately just writing obituary columns when the bust came about companies. And it was also just a topic that I knew about and was into, but it wasn't all I cared about. So I decided after that to expand it to all news. And that's how Next Draft came. And it's had a few other iterations over the years. But it's basically, I just love to, I'm a, a news addict. I love to uh, write short, pithy comments about uh, things going on uh, in the day's news. And I, I love counterpunching. So instead of waking up and thinking, what should I write about today? I wake up and I am given like a hundred topics and I write about 10 of them. And that's just the way I like to work the most. So it sort of was a perfect fit for me. Uh, and the internet, even though it's getting a bad rap these days, I mean, that's one of the beauties of it is that you can actually use software to create a program to create a product ultimately that reflects what you want to do or what you're good at. And so that's basically what I did. Do you have a news background? 
Uh, no, I just uh, grew up a news addict with my my parents, and that was our sort of key topic of conversation. So I've just always been really into news and news analysis, and uh, both of my parents were Holocaust survivors, so they had a very different take on a lot of news stories than the average American would. So I found I really learned. I got a great education in how to process news and how to think about big stories and what's reading between the lines, basically, about what, wh- how, why are you hearing what you're hearing and what does it all mean? So, yeah, I've never, I mean, I wrote for the school paper and I used to be a sports reporter, but I'm not really a journalist. I sort of, I'm, I'm sort of a modern day columnist. Uh, I think if the column was invented today, it would look a lot like Next Draft. Here's a few takes and here's a few links, but it's, I'm slightly have an outside perspective. So that's why I call it Next Draft. Uh, there's a saying that journalism is the first rough draft of history. So I called my newsletter next draft. I'm a few minutes later, uh, it's still pretty rough draft, but I'm, I'm looking at media and providing analysis. So I'm not really part of the media ecosystem, if that makes sense. It completely makes sense. That's so interesting. I never knew the origins of the name. Of course, when you started, um, you told the verge that you thought of email as the killer app. And now it seems everyone has caught up with you. Um, everyone has an email newsletter and platforms like Substack make it super easy for anyone to monetize that newsletter too. What do you make of this trend? Um, yeah, that's a big question because I make a lot of things of it, but it's I'm not surprised. It's not the first time. It's the biggest resurgence of newsletters, but it's definitely not the first uh, time. Any e-commerce uh, site uh, product manager or CEO will tell you that aside from Facebook, email is probably the biggest driver of commerce. Um, so I'm not that surprised. The Substack trend is uh, interesting because it's really about people with uh, somewhat known brands that they've established in mainstream media moving onto a platform where they can have a little more control and have a direct relationship with their audience. So I think that's great for the creator. Uh, I consider myself an indie creator, so I'm all for that. Uh, the creator making more money or the maker or whatever we're calling them these days, people getting paid for writing and thinking and being popular. Um, I'm a little worried that um, it will squeeze some of the other actual indie uh, writers out of the space because it's sort of like podcasting. It started out with a lot of indies that were huge and then every brand made a thousand podcasts. And now, you know, all of a sudden you're competing with Terry Gross. If you're an indie, it's a lot harder. Um, and it's removes a little bit of the spirit of the early internet, which I'm really attracted to. But overall, I think it's great. The one concern I have in terms of news these days is that I hope that people perceive the Substack products or email newsletters as opinion, not news, because there's so big of a fight in our culture today about what's real news and what's fake news. And they're really like me. They're opinion columnists. They're they're not necessarily having editors overlook their work. So that's fine, as long as it's positioned that way, because I do think there's a, a slippery slope that if everybody has a newsletter, it's like Twitter, where everybody's an expert on everything. But in general, I think the trend is great. I'm not surprised by it. One thing that's really interesting to me about the email trend is that I had stopped doing Next Draft for probably about three or four years. And I was thinking about bringing it back because I just missed the writing. But um, I talked to a friend of mine who's an engineer who's worked on a few projects with me. And he said, yeah, you should do it. And I said, but my worry is that people are so overwhelmed by Twitter and Facebook and the constant... Uh, tsunami of news and information that one more 
uh, news source is just going to crush them, you know? And he said, no, you have to think of it the opposite way. You take all that information flow and slow it down for people. And, and I think that's really the power of email is that it's asynchronous. It's right where you left it. It's in your inbox alongside messages from your mother and messages from your work. So it's a sort of a sacred place and it doesn't move. So if you decide you want to go read next draft three hours later, you don't have to feel like you do on Twitter where, oh, I need to scroll through uh, 300 tweets that I missed. It just stays there in one one format. I, I took the hit of the wave of news and I'm just making it one nice package for you. And that's what email really allows people to do. So that, that's my favorite thing about it. Have you noticed fluctuating readership based on news cycles? Well, the Trump cycle, although it was incredibly great for almost every media brand, I think for me, it was actually a net negative. Some people that were maybe right-leaning sort of got turned off and said, I've had enough of this. I I never really feel, even today, that Next Draft is particularly political unless you say pro or anti-democracy. That's my philosophy that the Trump era was different and it really would have been impossible to pretend that it was normal. Uh, I think the media, the general media did that for too long and that was a damaging, had a damaging effect. But the other part is, is that my, my whole product is that, Hey, I have a hundred incredibly interesting stories. I'm going to narrow it down to the best 10 most interesting and give you some fun quips and uh, overview that you'll know enough for your dinner party. And you can click through if you want to read more. But for four years, there was one story, you know, and one person starring in every headline. So that was a bummer for me. So that, that type of news ebb and flow that I don't know if that was an ever a flow or just a, a mudslide, but. That was pretty bad in general for me, for my psyche, for my product, for my readership. Um, I think it was the responsibility of people to pick a side uh, during that era, especially in 2020. And I'm happy that I did and I stand by it. Yeah, I was going to ask if that experience had changed your approach to curation. Like maybe now you're more you're more sensitive about pissing off subscribers. Do you, Does that kind of thing go through your mind when you're putting together each day's newsletter? Um, you know, it's interesting if I'm, if I'm ever worried about publishing something, I, it's never with somebody who is on the opposite side of the political spectrum. I get much more complaints from, I don't know what you would call it, the far, far woke left where any joke or any hint of a joke really is somehow offensive. Um, and I try to be incredibly careful, like everybody these days, probably too careful, which is a whole nother topic, but yeah, I worry more about that, making an innuendo that will offend somebody to the left of me than I ever do about offending somebody by telling the truth about a polit- political thing. You know, I mean, COVID is real. People can send me emails telling me how crazy I am. Being right is good enough for me on that part. I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of how you put together the next draft each day. So what's the first thing you do when you start a new edition? Well, it never, uh, it never really stops. So it's sort of a constant thing where I'm looking at stories on Twitter or Facebook or people are emailing me links that they think are cool or just my friends are, you know, sending them to DMing me links. But basically in the block from like nine to one or nine to noon, when I actually am focused hundred percent on it, uh, the first thing I do is open, I open three sets of tabs actually, because, uh, it's hard on browsers if you open like 75 sites at once. So I sort of broke it up into like 15, 20 sites. 
And I basically just go through the news. I don't use any tools. I just use a web browser. I actually open it up in tabs and look at the pages. I have tried over the years to use things like RSS readers or uh, other sort of fancy news apps and tools. But I really want to benefit from the managing editors of the newspapers who are deciding where to put stuff on their on their pages because they've done the first layer of work by telling me, based on where something is on a news page, what's most important, what's most interesting, what's a light thing you might want to read. And just as instinctually after doing this every day for my adult life, I just know where to look on the page. So that usually surprises people. They think I have uh, some kind of an algorithm or some tool. It's as I see on my about page, I am the algorithm. It used to be, I'd save about 50 stories, then narrow it down to 10. These days, because I sort of have more of a sense of it, more of a feel for it, I usually probably uh, save about 12, 13 stories uh, or story areas. Sometimes I have multiple stories in one section that are related. Uh, and I save those. I use Safari, so I save it in the read later. Uh, my reading list uh, in the left column. And I found that to be the best method for me. And then I opened up BB Edit, which is uh, an incredibly old markup tool. It's actually a full-on engineering tool, but I just use it pretty simply. And I actually type into that and I do my links to other stories by hand using that tool. And I like, if I want something to be bold or italicized, I use my old codes for that also. I have an engineer who uh, created a WordPress, custom WordPress installation that's probably as powerful or as advanced as a small newspaper's publishing system. And he basically takes what I write into BB Edit, which is the day's stories and the links. And I just paste it in as one document into this WordPress form because uh, he built it around the way I work. And then I just press uh, publish. And when I do, he takes all of my old man code and dirty garbage that I put in there in terms of code, not in terms of content. And he turns it into modern code. And then it gets sent off to uh, the WordPress blog, MailChimp to be sent, um, Apple News, Substack, uh, and all those other, all the other places wherever it appears, billboards near you. So, so, so that, that's basically the, uh, the overview of it. I use Safari BB Edit and uh, this incredible uh, WordPress install that a guy named Andrew Norcross built for me. So I'm really lucky uh, that I have indies, that um, indie developers and designers who, I mean, of course, I pay them as freelancers, but they take the product really seriously like I do. And that's, I'd, I wouldn't be able to keep doing this all the time. It's like a solo operator if I didn't sort of have a crew around me. And then I have one friend, a childhood friend named Rob Dunn, who I grew up with. And we're on uh, Telegram uh, messaging each other all day long. He's like my virtual office mate. So he, he'll look over most blurbs and I'll say, does this go too far? Or does this joke work? Or do we have a better headline for this? So that's another person I really couldn't do it without because it's like, it sort of gets lonely doing stuff like this over the years. Is the humor yours? Because that's one of my favorite things about it is the humor. Oh yeah, everything is mine. I mean, uh, I I write the whole thing um, and find all the stories. It's definitely from day to day. It's a one person operation for sure. Uh, and except for my friend Rob, who will say like, right. "I don't get it," and then I'll right. say, "Okay, I'll rewrite it." How do you think about sourcing? Um, what are like what are some of your go to sources? And then how do you make sure that you're not always 
using the same voices? Yeah. Well, in certain categories, I actually want to use the same voices a lot. Like when it comes to COVID coverage, there's just certain people who have gotten it incredibly right over the years. There's also certain sites that very early in the Trump uh, era predicted how it would end and got the story right. You know, they might've been outliers at the beginning. So I will return to similar sources or similar writers over and over um, but then I also get a broader view, you know, because I'm going to like 75 sites. Um, I'm not going to sites, sources like Fox News that calls itself news, but it's really just, um, you know, misleading propaganda masquerading as news. So I, I don't pretend to be biased, unbiased when it comes to truth and lies. I try to be, I mean, in general, my newsletter is personality driven, so I don't claim to be unbiased at all. But um, I do want to get a wide variety of voices when it comes, you know, like uh, right now we have the Afghanistan evacuation story. So I do try to get a lot of voices on that. And when it's a topic that I don't know enough about like that, I will go to people I know who do know more and sort of not interview them, but just have a chat with them over the phone or whatever and get an update on what the real story is. Because so much of media is PR, you know. Um, I'm out promoting a book right now. So I always tell the people that, you know, we're having a Zoom with like a PR company and the publishing company. And I say, this is exactly what uh, the people in the White House are doing. This is exactly what the people in the Pentagon are doing. Everybody has a media team. Everybody is uh, getting stories out. You know, the more information there is about a story, that means there's usually more infighting. So if the Pentagon and the CIA and the White House are trying to assess who's to blame for a slow evacuation in Afghanistan, you're going to get a million stories because they're leaking news. So every now and then I like to sort of bullshit test that experience by talking to somebody who really knows the topic and pulling back and saying, let's have analysis. It's a little deeper thinking than just repeating every leaked uh, sort of flame in a flame war. Now, I think your subject lines are things of pure gold, um, especially because I love puns so much. What do you do to keep that pun machine going? Uh, yeah, unfortunately for my children, uh, it's a natural uh, trait of mine. So I pun pretty regularly. I just think in puns. I don't know why. Uh, so maybe I was a humanities major. I don't know much about numbers, but words come pretty naturally. Um, most days it comes really easy. I don't really have to think about it much. The only days that I really will think about it when I'm in the shower or driving or asking a few friends for their ideas is, uh, if it's a story everybody's going to lead with, and it's sort of a funny story. So on those days, you know, the daily news is going to try to have a good pun. Even the New York times is going to try to have a good or funny headline. So on those days, I feel like, okay, this is like, uh, Interesting, like the day after the Super Bowl is like my Super Bowl. I know everybody's leading with the Super Bowl or the day after the Oscars. So I, I feel uh, an internal desire to win that headline competition. So uh, it's sort of a bizarre, uh, a bizarre skill and a bizarre desire to uh, continue working on. But it's me. Do you have an all-time favorite subject line? You're like, yes, I nailed it. Um, man, that's, that is tough. Uh, I'm not sure if I have an all-time favorite because there's just been so many. Uh, when the Iowa caucuses went crazy, I called something ayahuasca, spelled <laughs> with Iowa. So I enjoy those type of ones where it just takes the word. Uh, when I use that in my book, the copy editors at my publishing company are like, uh, I don't think this is how you spell ayahuasca. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to be 
a really brutal job for you then, dude. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I probably could think of one, but I don't know if I could do it on the spot. We'll get to your book in a second, but um, I first wanted to talk about, I, you know, I love that you call yourself the managing editor of the internet. What are the joys and hazards that come with that responsibility? Well, I think most people uh, just think it's funny. So that was the main goal of that. But I, it just sort of dawned on me as I was going and basically editing all the stuff that other people are editing on newspapers and news sites on the internet. So um, the joy is I just think it's funny. I don't actually feel a strong responsibility. When I first started Next Draft, interestingly, I really wanted to be exhaustive because I felt like, oh, people are depending on me for their, their day's news, so I want to give them a good overview so they don't miss anything. And then about I don't know, a few months into it, I, I decided this is doesn't make sense. I'm one person. People are reading this in the same for the same reason why they're listening to like a radio talk show, which I think is the most analogous thing to Next Draft. And um, I decided I'm just going to focus on what I'm interested in, what I think is important that day, and make it 100% personality-driven. And that's when it sort of took off. So I'm really only managing editor of my own psyche. But... Uh, <laughs> That psyche does spend a lot of time on the internet, so maybe there's not much uh, differentiated between the two. Does that psyche ever get burned out on producing this every single day? Uh, pretty rarely. Every now and then, that psyche gets burnt out. Um, but if I stop for a couple of days, then I'm like dying to get back to it. Definitely opening the tabs, thinking about news, especially you know from two, 2016 and even more so in 2020 when it, in 2020 when it got really overwhelming and depressing um, consuming the news certainly is something i need a break from occasionally and i don't recommend other people do nearly as much as i do but actually writing about it and professionalizing it i don't really get sick of and it's actually makes it uh it i sort of protect my emotional uh life by professionalizing the news. So I, I very, very rarely have an emotional reaction to a news story because I know I have to turn it into a product uh, by the end of the day or by noon or whatever. So that's a bit of a, a protective barrier compared to, I know some of my friends in 2020 were just really actually overwhelmed and depressed by the news or a lot of people, not just my friends. So um yeah, in, in a way, it's a protective thing, but I do get sick of it once in a while, for sure. What would you recommend to other curators for how they can practice self-care? Um, I mean, I think they have to be into it to want to share it. Um, in a way, I really do think of myself, I certainly am curating the news, but I think of myself as a columnist. So that's the part I you know, get off on is my part of this product as opposed to just collecting other people's parts. Um, so I think that's part of it. You know, it, it has to feel like it's a creation, not just a collection. Um, and that, that keeps people, I think that keeps you from getting burnt out because if you're passionate about what you're making, it's like you might get tired of it here and there, but like then you wake up the next morning, you just need to push that publish button. So I, I think that's that's really the key is to have it be something you're making that is reflective of you, not just a collection of something. What's challenging about what you do? Um, I think like the marketing is challenging, rising above the din of all the stuff on the internet. You know, there's so many things to choose from. 
you know, and I'm really grateful for the people that take the time to choose and read next draft every day. Um, but it is hard to uh, market something like that or to get people to share it, uh, especially when you're a one man shop. So if I chose to be a company, that would be a little different, you know, but I have seen many newsletters come to me and the team will get some feedback from me and then they go and they raise a few million bucks and then they're like 50 times the size of me and they get sold, which is all good. I, I don't want it to be a business in that way, but I do sometimes wish I had a team of uh, marketers just making it bigger. That's all. That's probably the most frustrating thing that it's it's big and it grows slowly, but I'd love to get like some huge bumps, you know, the more, the better. So that's what really drives me as that uh, desire to be read. Well, let's talk about your book. You mentioned it several times. It's called Please Scream Inside Your Heart. And the title for me is Positively Panic Inducing. Why did you choose this angle? Uh, well, the the title is based off of this um, roller coaster at an amusement park in Japan, uh, sort of in the shadow of Mount Fuji, where they had reopened early in the pandemic to uh, visitors. But all the visitors, of course, were required to wear masks uh, when they were attending the amusement park. And at one point, they realized that people were screaming and going crazy, especially on one of the rides, which is the, rated about the 10th um, most scary roller coaster uh, around. And it was maybe the most scary when it was first built. So they asked people to stop screaming on this ride. And of course, people went crazy on social media in Japan and elsewhere saying, this is impossible. How could you possibly not scream on this ride? So the amusement park owners had two of their executives in their uh, shirt and tie and with perfectly combed hair uh, do the ride with a web a cam facing them. And they were completely stoic and still the entire time it didn't make a peep. And then at the end of that video, it said, please scream inside your heart. So, <laughs> That was my it was my favorite meme of the pandemic, and it just felt like um, it felt like how so many people felt during 2020, where they just wanted to scream, but they weren't exactly sure who to scream at, or who would hear it, or what to scream about, uh, which affront to their psyche to scream about. So that's why I, I named it that. What's the gist of the book? Uh, the book is uh, sort of. The core of it is an overview of what happened in 2020, both in terms of uh, the politics, Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, and what it felt like to experience that. So like Next Draft, it it takes news stories from the year. It uh, has excerpts from uh, journalists who got the story right in the book. Um, but it's also a very personal angle uh, about how that affected me and my family and how that reflects on a broader society. And then th throughout uh, the book, in addition to that sort of core structure, is there a look at our relationship to media, how we got to this point, our relationship to technology, a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about for all the time I've been on the internet. Um, and then the most important part of the book for me is uh, that it also has a lot about my relationship with my parents, why I became a news addict, why you shouldn't, and their reflections uh, as the year unfolded and you know, a country they were so happy to come to started resembling a country they escaped from. So um, that was really uh, the most interesting and sort of horrifying part of the year for me. So... I wanted to share that with a broader group. 
What do your parents think of the book? Uh, unfortunately, my dad passed away um, uh, at the end of last year. So my I'm family sorry. was one of the 2020 victims also. But uh, he was into it. He said, I mean, he said, uh, I don't want to be famous. And then that was about it. We went back to talking about Trump. Um, but he was he was into it. I mean, he would definitely like it because he's one of the stars of the book. And uh, he had a very amazing life. But one interesting thing he said was, don't make it too liberal, okay? So <laughs> it's like he was warning about Trump. He was making comparisons between Trump and speech-wise and Hitler when he was growing up and talking about the danger to democracy. But he was anything but a, a snowflake liberal. He was like... Uh, probably a Republican for most of his life. So that's why I felt his messages were really important. Uh, and my mom read the book and she she approved it and said, yes, if that's the way you see us, David, you can publish it. Uh, <laughs> so that was that was about it. We were pretty low-key in my family, but she, she gave her thumbs up. How was writing the book different from producing the newsletter? I mean, it, it's much more personal and has a much more broader scope than the newsletter. And of course, it's many more of my words as opposed to the newsletter, which is, you know, maybe a sentence or two or three from me and then off you go. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's it, it resembles the newsletter in terms of tone and voice uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, I figured I've been practicing that for 20 years. I might as well deploy it somewhere. But it's... Um, much more it has the pace of the newsletter but it goes on for you know a few hundred pages so that was my goal uh the cover has like a roller coaster in the background both because of the title and because i want i really wanted the book to feel like a roller coaster because that's how the year felt so um yeah it goes pretty fast and i think people would see from the first couple pages it's not just about the year's news it's about something a lot broader than that I can't wait to read it. Do you have any more books in you? Uh, my agent keeps asking me that also. Uh, they say it's like uh, like startups. A lot of times they want to get their second round of funding right before they launch, just in case they launch and no one comes. So uh, I guess there's an urgency for me to sell a, another book before uh, this one comes out just in case, although the pre-sale numbers are pretty good. So maybe it's not that bad, but uh, yeah, I have a few ideas. Um, I'm just not exactly sure which one to do. So I need to actually start typing. I spending so much time these days uh, checking my stats and trying to promote the book. It's a little hard to focus on the next one, but I'm sure I'll do another one, but it's always been a bucket list uh, thing for me. So it's going to be a great feeling for me. I, always notice that people like to downplay how psyched they are about stuff, but I'm very psyched about this. How did you manage being a one-man shop and writing a book at the same time? Yeah, that, that part was probably the emotional breaking point hit a few times because I was writing about March and living through September. Um, you know, that was, I don't advise that for emotional health. Um, but I just always work alone. So, you know, I don't want to make it I'm not like managing a hundred people. That's probably harder than just, um, you know, going through next draft as an outline and writing a book based on that. Uh, it's the one thing I can do pretty quickly. So it was hard at times, but it really wasn't that big of a deal. Now your wife has a newsletter too, Gina Pell called the what, which helps people know what to buy, what to try and where to go. So my question is, what's it like to be in a two curator household? 
Uh, yeah, that that's a good question. We think of ourselves as the Beyonce and Jay-Z of newsletter writing. <laughs> um, although sometimes it's more like Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, when we're fighting about it. But no, we it, our newsletters are pretty complimentary, actually. So it works out pretty well because uh, I wrote about more hard news and she writes more about books and um, products and cultural stuff. Um, but yeah, we like each other's newsletters. So, um, it works out pretty well, but it is strange. Luckily it's going pretty well for both of us. I guess if, um, one of ours was hugely popular and the other one had like three readers, then there might be some issues that arise, but luckily, uh, we both like each other's and they're pretty good. Do you read each other's when they come out just like everyone else? Or do you get like a sneak peek? Uh, no, we just read each other's when they come out. If we're if we're uh, feeling good about each other, otherwise, I'm sure she deletes two or three days a week. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but especially if I'm writing while she's driving the kids somewhere or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, we just get them when they come. Unless it's something really important, then we might have a little proof or whatever. But she was my best editor uh, on my book for sure, so that was great. Do your kids kind of get what you guys do? Uh, I mean, they can't stand us, but they get what we do, what we do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, hers is more of a full company. She really has like a community of, uh, you know, hundred, 150,000 women and she has, uh, events and that probably makes a little more sense to them. And it has a revenue model, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, they get what I do, but they're turned off by news because I'm into it and they think I don't know anything about the internet. Like every parent, you know, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen's kids don't care about his songs. So that's why that's, I think of myself as a Bruce Springsteen of newsletter writing. So (laughs) I can take the heat, I guess. Someday they'll be into it. When they have an assignment from school that deals on current events or some news of the world, then suddenly I'm pretty cool. Otherwise, it's like, dude, you don't know how to use a computer. What are you doing? <laughs> so since we're both curators, I'd like to like move into more of your personal picks. Like, What are the books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, social media accounts, you name it, that you would recommend everyone check out because they've brought you such joy? All right. So um, I probably have a weird one to start with. I am a uh, absolute Howard Stern addict, and I will take whatever heat is associated with that, but he's much different than people probably recall from the early years where it was more shock. He doesn't really, at this point, we're all shocked, so he doesn't really shock much anymore, but he's probably the best interviewer uh, I've ever heard, Um, although you're doing an awesome job here too, but um, he just does incredible celebrity interviews and music artist interviews, which I love, and I just know all the characters on the show. Uh, so I, I love that. And because of that, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts because that takes up a lot of my driving time. Um, I am a TV addict. I like the internet, but I love television. Uh, so I watch, you know, all the succession is, I think, um, one of the most fun shows I've seen in a long time. Uh, I love, uh, Ted Lasso, like everybody else. I didn't think I would because I'm a pretty cynical Roy Kent type of character, but I do love the show. He defeats, Sudeikis has defeated all of us. We just (laughs) all are up for being happy, uh, which is nice. I mean, it came at the perfect time during the pandemic, that's for sure. Um, I also, um, I like a lot of international shows, so I love this show. Probably one of my favorite shows is a show called Gamora uh, that's on HBO Max these days, but it's a story about the Naples mob and it's sort of like sopranos without any levity 
Um, but it's much more real than our mafia shows. And it's just really well done. And the music is amazing. Books wise, I read a lot of nonfiction. So I read a great book called Fulfillment that was about um, Amazon's role in our society uh, and how the workforce and the places we work have changed over the decades. That was really a good explanation of that. Um, I love the book uh, Empire of Pain about the Sacklers by Patrick Radden Keefe. And for nonfiction, I'd like to read a lot of Don Winslow. He wrote, uh, my favorite thing he wrote is a trilogy about um, the drug war from both sides of the border. And it's fiction, but it's remarkably uh, realistic. Uh, he studied the issue for a long time before writing the books. Uh, th- that topic, those two topics really, um, uh, opioids and the drug war and how they're connected are really uh, interesting to me. I just happen to be, that's like one area I just find endlessly interesting. Um, and music, I'm uh, just a serious XM alt nation guy. So I discover a lot of music through there and I go to a ton of shows when it's not the pandemic. That's probably my favorite thing to do outside of the house. But so that's been the one rough thing for the pandemic. Otherwise we've had it pretty easy compared to most people. So I'd say that's a good, good place to, for people to start, but definitely uh, in my newsletter, I have something called weekend what's where every week I share non news related stuff that I'm either reading or watching. I also love documentaries. Uh, I just got done watching The 100-Foot Wave, which is like my 50th surf movie or miniseries. And I don't surf, but I'm just obsessed with that culture for some reason. I don't know why. So Barbarian Days, if you want a book on surfing by William Finnegan, is also just unbelievable. Um, and I'll read anything by George Packer also for nonfiction. Uh yeah, I just usually read stuff to try to understand the issues I'm covering. Um, I'm getting boring in my old age. I used to read novels all the time, but now I'm sort of a nonfiction dad. Yeah, me too. I love that. So many great books that you've just mentioned. I also loved Barbarian Days, um, as well as Empire of Pain. So you have also made many essential newsletter lists over the years. Who is on your must-read list when it comes to newsletters? Yeah, I don't read a ton of them, honestly, because... Uh, I'm not sure why. I think just because I don't want to see any lines or something that might give me a, an idea uh, that I might reuse accidentally or whatever. Um, but like I read The Hustle pretty much every day. I think they do a really good job of mixing um, business news with fun stuff. Um, I uh, I get Dan Pfeiffer, uh, who is on Pod Saves America. He, he writes a really good newsletter. Um, which is very different from mine. It's not like a collection of links or a collection of stories. It's more a take on the behind the scenes uh, political wrangling and strategy. But he really does an incredible job of taking something he knows a lot about and sort of simplifying it for a general a general audience. I get a few tech newsletters and Substack newsletters and stuff like that, but I don't really get that many of them, uh, which is weird. But I don't. Makes sense. You probably don't want to influence yourself. Yeah. Dave, is there anything we haven't talked about that you would like to bring up? Uh, I don't think so. That's uh, I have a very narrow area of focus, so I can talk <laughs> about email all day. But otherwise, there is one thing about email that I think is worth considering for people about why it's so popular that I forgot to mention earlier, which is that 
we're constantly having debates uh, in the media and around dinner tables about the algorithms that are, you know, sort of dominating our lives and choosing what we're going to focus on. And can we convince Facebook to have a better algorithm? And can we convince these other tools? But your email inbox is really the one feed that you have total control over. And, uh, you know, if you don't like next draft, you just unsubscribe. You know, if you don't like the messages from your mom, you just tell Google to mark them as red and not forward them to you. Uh, you really do have control. Some spam gets through, but these days that problem is sort of solved. So um, I just think that's a powerful thing. That's the most powerful thing about the inbox in a lot of ways. So that's just my final thought after 30 years of thinking about email. If you want to subscribe to The Next Draft, go to nextdraft.com. Thank you to Rosanna Caban for editing. If you want to find out more about Flipboard, where enthusiasts are curating stories they recommend across thousands of interests, download the app or head over to our website at flipboard.com. Anyone can be a curator on Flipboard. Simply create an account and start flipping to share your ideas with the world.